Well, good morning. We are in a series called The Thrill of Hope. And it comes from the song, O Holy Night, that we just sang just a few moments ago. I don't know about you, but for me, Christmas is this mixed bag of emotions. On one hand, we're told that it is the most wonderful season of the year. On the other hand, it can be the most dysfunctional season of the year. So much will happen in the next few days that could be absolutely amazing or an absolute failure. And as I just said, we've entitled this message, Thrill of Hope. And it comes from that really, really beautiful line in what has come to be, for me, a very favorite Christmas carol. The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I want that. I want that. I don't just want that on Christmas. I want that every single day of the year. The thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices for yonder breaks. If you're not from the south, yonder means over there. (laughs) For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. It's thrilling. Hope is an incredibly thrilling experience. Because of the potential that it holds and the anticipation of what it may bring. The dictionary defines hope as the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if that were always consistently every day of the year true? But it seems that everywhere I go this time of year, the world around me is expressing tremendous amount of money and energy to convince me that this truly is the most wonderful time of the year. Can I be totally honest with you this morning? Christmas, for me, is as much a reminder of what can be had as it is about what will never be. It is much about the feeling that things will turn out for the best as it is about the reality that many things will not. For me, especially this year, it's as much a picture of who is around the tree as a reminder of who isn't around the tree. Pretty uplifting start, right? It's Christmas. supposed to be jolly. It'll get better. But that tension, that tension that I'm experiencing, that you may be experiencing this holiday season, this place of in-between, what is and what isn't, this is what makes hope so incredibly thrilling. We live in a culture in a time where it appears as if hope is on the decline. I don't think that's true. I think we live in a culture in a time in a season of life where hope is more important, more desired than ever. I think the problem is that we have grown suspicious of hope. A little maybe afraid of hope. Maybe we've been disappointed in life. Maybe we can relate to the idea of it being a weary world. And we're a little resistant towards the idea of hope. We'll get back to that in just a minute. But I want to tell you a story. 
This morning is going to be a little unusual because I'm going to tell you a series of stories. But this first one's about me. When I was maybe 17 years of age, it was Christmas. My parents had maybe been divorced for a couple of years at this point. I had just gotten my driver's license, and I was eager to assert my role as an adult in the home. And so I said to my mom, listen, my brother and I, Randy, we're going to go get the tree together, just the two of us, right? It seemed like the manly thing to do. We're going to go chop down the Christmas tree. And she hesitantly said, okay, you guys go do that. And so we set out on our way to Cobb's Christmas tree farm, where we had gone every year to chop down the tree. We searched and searched and searched for this tree. And we found the most amazing tree. There was so much hope in this experience for me, chopping down this beautiful Christmas tree. So we cut the thing down, and we drug it up to the cashier. We went deep into the woods, so we had to bring it way out. And all the way up to the cashier, people kept staring at us. And I kept thinking, they are in love with this tree. They are jealous of my most amazing Christmas tree. And the hope began to build and build and build. We got up to the cashier, and the cashier says, looked at the tree and says, it'll be this amount of money. <laughs> All of the blood left my body. <laughs> because I had nowhere near that amount of money in my pocket. I mean, nowhere near it. And I stared at the cashier. The cashier stared at me. I stared back at the cashier. And what seemed like an eternity... Mr. Cobb, the owner of the Christmas tree farm, comes over to the cashier and says, what's happening? And the cashier says, these boys chopped down this tree and don't have enough money to pay for it. And Mr. Cobb said, come with me. And I thought for sure this was it. Christmas was coming to a rapid close for me. And Mr. Cobb said, how much money do you have? And I said, sir, I have $45. And he said, well, this tree costs a lot more than that. I said, well, this is all I have. And he took my money. And then Mr. Cobb did something that will still to this day amaze me. He picked up that tree and he put it on the top of my car. And he began to tie that tree to the top of my car. And as he did that, I realized why everyone was staring at us. Because this tree was longer than my car. <laughs> It literally hung off the front of the car and the back of the car. It was like a Christmas rainbow on my car. And I thought to myself, well, what an amazing tree. And the hope, I said, wow, we picked this huge tree. And we drove it home. We stood it up. And it was literally taller than our house. <laughs> and so my brother and I borrowed a saw because that's when you do when you live with a single mom. You borrow a saw. And we chopped off the bottom of the tree as much as we could. And we thought, please, let this fit. And we took it into the house and we stood it up, now literally sitting on the carpet because we cut the, the stump off. And we stood it up and it scraped the top of the roof and it bent over. It was not anywhere near the right height, again, for our living room. And so we did what boys will do. We chopped the top off the tree. And so now we have what really looks like a shrub because it's sitting, <laughs> sitting on the ground and it, it comes to just like this at the top. It was by far the ugliest Christmas tree on the planet. 
My mom did everything she could to fix it, but it was, it was a bit of a nightmare. But I'll tell you, in that moment, it's a silly story today, but in that moment, I was devastated. The thrill of hope dashed. And while that is kind of a funny story, it was one of a series of stories that began to erode my trust in the idea of hope. I grew suspicious and maybe even a little afraid of the notion of hope. For me today, even as an adult, the idea of hope is often met with a defensive posture, a position of protection, a deep desire to not be disappointed. There are moments in my life, even today as an adult, where I think I'd rather be hopeless than disappointed. This morning's Advent idea is that of obedience. And I genuinely think that the key to unlocking that fear of disappointment, the unlocking the key to living a life that embraces hope, a life that pushes against the fear of disappointment, the key to unlocking that is to live a life marked by obedience. For me, obedience to God, to live the life he has called me to live, to be the man he created me to be, that there is no greater cure for disappointment, no greater cure for a weary world than a life that is about obedience. When the world comes crashing around me, when life gets hard, when loss is great, the pathway to hope begins with obedience. Obedience means that I let go of my own agenda, my own stuff, my own fears, my own worries, my own anxieties. I let go of those and give those to God and trust that he knows what is best and right for me. I know this word, obedience, in our culture, we push against it. I have two little girls under the age of 10. I'm well-versed in the fundamental human struggle with obedience. But obedience means that I let go and I let God do what only God can do in my life. Now, I know that the word obedience can also have negative connotations, that when taken to its fullest degree in a negative way can be abusive and controlling. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about obedience in its most pure and best light. For me, obedience brings me back brings me back to Jesus every single time. Obedience takes me out of my fear, out of my desires, out of my own head, out of my own hopelessness, and brings me back to what matters most, which is Jesus' work in my life and in your life. As the Yoons just read a piece of the Christmas story told by Luke in chapter 2, it's my favorite part of the story. I've told you over the years that I relate to the shepherds. I love the shepherds' involvement in the Christmas story. I'm always drawn to their storyline. This morning, we're going to focus on their obedience. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have a Bible that is your own, steal one of ours. We would love for you to steal one of our Bibles, take it home, make it your own. Luke chapter 2. The Yoon's just read it beautifully, but I'm going to pick up a little bit further into the story and read some of what they just read to you. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and then gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorified and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The very first people centered around Jesus, other than his parents, were these crazy shepherds. These shepherds who had no means, who had no home, they went where the flock went. They did as the flock did. Some angels appeared to them in the night and they were afraid. And the angels calmed their fears and he said, the angels said to them, a Savior has been born. And their immediate response was to pack up their stuff and go. And they went. They went to see what the angels had said. Here they are, minding their flock, and they go. They were obedient to go. They heard the good news, and they went to see. They came face to face with Jesus. They came to see the Savior of the world. They came out of obedience to see their hope fulfilled, and their obedience brought them to Jesus. Their obedience brought them to the Savior of the world. Now, here's the best part. Having been obedient, having allowed their obedience to lead them back to Jesus, they left that manger and they ran to tell the world all they had seen. They could not contain their thrill of hope. They had no choice, no option, but to bring that light to a weary world. A new day had come. Their obedience had brought them to Jesus, and their only response, and really our only appropriate response, is to share that with everyone we come in contact with. So with the moments we have left this morning, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to share some stories of hope. I'm going to share some stories of hope that come from our own obedience as a church. Two years ago, as Ray said last Sunday, two years ago, we started on a generosity initiative that we called All In, where we asked the question, what would happen if we conspired together to do more than we could do as individuals? What would happen if we went all in for the world around us? And we asked everyone who called Parkview Home to do three things. We asked you to ask, listen, and do. We asked the question, what would happen if over the next two years we went all in for people? And so we challenged you, ask God 
God, what do you want me to give? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to go all in? And then we simply said, listen. Listen to what it is that God calls you to do. And then we asked you to be obedient, to do what it is that God asks you. It was never about money. It was never about guilt. It was never about shame or obligation. It was never about how much. It was always about our obedience to what God was calling us to do. And as individuals and as a church. So we believed God was calling us to go all in for people. To stand in the gap. To advocate for people in big and small ways. Not just here in our own backyard, but all the way around the world. So this morning I get to tell you three really incredible stories. So at the beginning of All In, one of the things that we asked of you is we asked what would happen if we went all in for a group of girls in Calcutta, India. A group of girls who had been rescued from the most horrible life imaginable. Who had been trafficked. Who had been made to do things that are unspeakable. What would happen if we showed up for these girls? Could our obedience bring hope? And so we stepped out in faith and we built a recovery home for these girls. The home called Mahima Umed. It opened over, a little over a year ago. And it has been filled to capacity since the day it opened. With girls who are growing, who are coming back to life who are being cared for by godly men and women who are helping them see that there is a Savior, that there is people who can love them in well and appropriate ways. In fact, now they are adding to that house to allow for 20 more additional beds. 20 more additional girls will be living in that house starting early next year. And over these two years, we've seen girls graduate from the program And they're out living on their own with jobs and being invested in their community. We've seen girls get married. We've seen girls be reunited with their families. All of this done in the name of Jesus Christ. And because we were obedient. Well, that's awkward. (laughs) All of this done in the name of Jesus Christ. And because we were obedient to a calling. Our obedience pointed people to Jesus halfway around the world. Now here's where things get crazy. Here's where the unexpected hope comes into the story. And in each of these stories, you're going to see that pattern where we stepped out on faith and something unexpected came to be. Because of our obedience and our generosity, our friends in India got bold with their vision to end human trafficking in their city. And what they realized was that there was another problem in the community. And that was that lots of little boys were being born in the brothels of Calcutta, India. And they were growing up and being a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. And they said, what would happen if we built a home for these boys? And so they came to us and said, you guys have been so incredibly generous. Would you be open to helping us with this other home? And we said, no. We said, no, we can't. You see, we've already done so much. We've already asked the church to give so significantly. We cannot go back and ask for more. And so we said, no. Literally in the same week that we had that conversation with our friends in India, we got a phone call from a person from this church. 
who said, our family business every year gives money away. Does Parkview need anything? And we said, no. Parkview doesn't need anything. But we have this opportunity in India. Would you be interested in talking to us about that? And so we went and we sat down with the family and we shared this vision for this beautiful home for boys in Calcutta. And they deliberated as a family and they called us later the next week and they said, we're in. But it's our custom to only go halfway. We, go to, we like to partner. We want to we split it with you. We want our people who we partner with to have skin in the game. And I said, no. Again, we can't, we can't do that. And they said, uh, what? No one's ever said no to us before. And I said, no, it's not. We just can't. I said, but come to church this weekend. And so they came, and a bunch of their family came. And it was a year ago this Sunday where the folks from International Justice Mission stood up here, and we as a church were able to hand them a check for $150,000 for their work in India. Later that next week, the family called and said, ah, we're all in. And they wrote Parkview a check for $50,000. We sent it to India, and they built this. And now, because of your generosity, we were able to provide an unexpected piece of hope. And there are now eight boys living in that home who would have, without this home, be literally living on the streets of Calcutta, India, fighting for their life. Your obedience, pointing people to Jesus halfway around the world. Two years ago, we stood up here and asked what would happen if we went all in for a couple of schools in our community. A couple of schools who are under-resourced, who didn't have the funds to do the things that they needed to do for their students. We asked the question, what would it be like if we showed up for these schools? What might happen? And so what started as a small number of people mentoring a few kids one-on-one has turned into something more amazing than any of us could have ever possibly anticipated or imagined. Over these years, we have bought books, we have celebrated, we have laughed together, we have cried together, we have invested together. We have even, we even built an incredible outdoor courtyard uh, for, for Schaefer Elementary. Uh, it's unbelievable. The kids come and go from that space. They can, teachers can go out there and they can um, educate in those spaces. But what has happened, happened in our partnership with Schaefer and Jefferson Middle School has been unbelievable. Today we have more than 50 kids participating in one of our Lunch Bunch programs, led by people from Parkview. We have 12 kids involved in one-on-one mentoring, again, led by people from Parkview. There are more than 40 volunteers who every week serve in this incredible thing. And we asked the school two years ago, what do you really need from us? How can we go all in for you? And what they said back to us was we need an after-school educational intervention program. And we said, can you spell that? Because we don't even know what that is. And they began to develop a vision for their school that involved us four days a week, two hours a day after school, investing into the most at-risk students in their population. We thought to ourselves, no church. We don't know how to do this. We're a church. This is not what we do. But we said, we're going to go all in because that's what God has called us to do, and so we were obedient as a church. The school uses a color system to evaluate the risk of students. 
The scale goes from red to yellow to blue to green. At the beginning of the program uh, last year, every one of the kids entering our program came in at a red, at risk, maybe reading below grade level. And as the year progressed, all but three of them moved all the way through the scale to green. We saw test scores rise. We saw participation in class rise. We saw these kids enter their next year of school with a greater sense of hope for their future. And this year we have more students, we have more volunteers, we're more experienced, and we're digging deeper into their lives. We're providing more and more wraparound services from, from sports um, activities for boys to um, coaching, uh, helping the coaches with certain basketball teams to um, just a myriad of things that we're doing that I could spend an hour telling you about. We're doing that because God called us as a church to go all out and all in for people. Our obedience is pointing people to Jesus. If you were to sit with these kids that, we, that our North Avenue team gets to sit with, your hearts would be broken by their stories. But because you're obedient, because we as a church are being obedient, because God called us to do something significant, these kids are growing up knowing that we care for them. Now I want to tell you the part of that that turned a corner that we would not have expected, the place of unexpected hope. About a year ago, on December 5th, we turned on the news to learn of a young boy named Michael Catron who was fatally shot in his home. We learned that this boy attended a school from the same district as Schaefer and Jefferson. So not a school that we were actively involved in, but a school in the district that we were investing in. We reached out to the principal and asked, again, how can we help? She wrote me an email, and she said, first of all, I'm touched that you would reach out to our community during this difficult time. Thank you. I have heard wonderful things about Parkview Community Church, and I am grateful for your prayers, as there have been many in our community who have needed them. Later, we would learn that Michael was accidentally shot and that uh, in his home, we would learn that his mother had been shot and killed in the south side of Chicago uh, a year earlier, that his uncle had been shot and killed in Chicago as well. And after his mother's death, he moved to the, to, from the south side of Chicago to DuPage County to live with his aunt. There was a gun in the house. Michael and his cousin found it. It went off, and Michael was killed. And as we got to know the mom, as we got to know the principal of this school, we learned that the family didn't have the means in which to provide burial for their son, for their nephew, for their grandson. As I prayed, as we prayed as a team with the aunt, Michael's aunt, she invited us to the service. Chris, the principal, uh, Michael's teacher and I all attended the funeral. We prayed with the family. We cried with the family. I sat and watched in awe as Michael's teacher laid on the floor and held his aunt as she grieved. And I want you to know, because of your obedience, because of your generosity, we were able to pay the entire bill for Michael's service, all of his funeral expenses, all of his burial expenses. We were able to show up for this family in a way that they will never, ever forget. And we did that to point them 
towards Jesus. And as, as the principal and I walked out of that funeral home, I was able to say to her that the people of Parkview have covered Michael's funeral costs. And she broke down into tears, and she grabbed me, and she hugged me, and she would not let go, which, if you know me, is incredibly awkward because <laughs> I'm not much of a hugger. But she would not let go. She cared deeply for this young boy and for his family, and we stood in the gap with her and helped lighten that burden. It was a moment of unexpected hope for her that we, you, were able to provide. You showed up for this family, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. So one last story. If you were around two years ago, you know that one of the initiatives for All In was to improve the physical space here on this campus. We don't do that for us. We don't do that to make nice and shiny places for us. We do that so that the outside world who comes in here has a positive experience. So the plan was to enlarge the size of our lobby, totally remodel the children's spaces. And as we got into the planning phase of that and as construction uh, was beginning to ramp up, we realized that doubling the size of our lobby was going to be cost prohibitive. And so we delayed that part of the project, and we focused on just making the lobby look good and improving our children's spaces. Again, not for us, but for everyone who's yet to come here. In that process, one of the things we really wanted to do was memorialize our friends who have been a part of MANA, who have passed on. But because of their condition, because of where they were in that stage of life, didn't have the means or the resources to have a legitimate burial, have their name on a marker. And we thought that was wrong. And we wanted to provide a place where names could be listed People could be remembered, and, and they, those lives would never be forgotten. But we kind of scaled back the construction project, and we were like, where are we going to put this? So we walked across the street, and we bought a plot of land, and we built that. And we had been carrying around this list of names, and it had been building over the years, and we put every one of their names on that monument. And it's literally right across the street, from the church. And there's room for us to add more. Because these are people that for whatever reason found themselves in a bad spot and we wanted to make sure that it would be remembered that we as a church, out of obedience to what God has called us to do, stood in the gap for them. And that their, their lives would always matter. They would always have a sacred spot where someone could come along and read their name. Now, I don't share these stories with you so that we can pat ourselves on the back or puff ourselves up. I share these stories with you because as all in comes to a close at the end of this year, we want to celebrate all that God has done and to honor the obedience of his church. None of this, none of this would have been possible without you, all of us, conspiring together to ask, listen, and do. The formal all-in generosity initiative comes to a close. But we are never, ever, ever going to stop being a church that goes all out, all in, in big and small ways for people. 
We're never going to stop showing up for people in their darkest hour and in their brightest moments. Why? Because we, as the church, are the hope of the world. Bill Hybels, a pastor and author, famously said that the church is the hope of the world. But he's referencing Charles Spurgeon, a pastor from the 1800s, who in a sermon in 1863 said this, Why do we stay here? Why do all the believers stay here on earth? But that we may be salt in the most putrefaction, in the midst of putrefaction. Light in the midst of darkness. Life in the midst of death. The church is the world's hope. As Christ is the hope of the church, so the church is the hope of the world. The saints become, under Christ, the world's saviors. Then we must not marvel, being here for this very purpose. If Christ does throw us like a handful of salt, just where the putrefaction is at its worst, or if he should cast us, as he often has done uh, before, where our influence is most needed. That is why we exist. That is why we're here, to extend hope to the world, to provide that thrill of hope to an incredibly weary world. And I'm here to tell you this morning that this church has been, has always been, and will always continue to be the hope of the world. You and I as believers are hope to the world, but only if we're obedient. When you and I are obedient, a weary world rejoices. When you and I are obedient, unbelievable things take place. Our obedience points people to Jesus here and around the world. So this morning, as you leave this place, maybe you're struggling, maybe you identify with the notion of it being a weary world. Take hope. Take hope in the fact that your church, the people of your church, because of their obedience to God's calling, have extended hope to the world. Father, we come before you this morning. We're grateful. We know that you are the only reason any of this is even possible. Our sacrifice pales in comparison to your sacrifice. Our obedience is inspired by your hope, your glory, your grace. And so this morning, we as a church pause, and we thank you for all you have done. All you have done in our own community and around the world We thank you for the life change that has manifested because a group of people decided to be obedient and generous and faithful to the things that you have called us to do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The temptation on a Sunday like this is to deliver some really, really like light, fluffy, sort of Christmassy kind of thing. My hope for you this morning, if that is a struggle for you, that you'll walk out of this place walking on cloud nine because of the miraculous nature of God's thrilling hope. That you will walk out of here, that you will see the world as he sees it as a place in need of a savior, a weary world in need of a savior. And you will allow yourself to make a difference. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for that awesome truth. 
And as your church leaves the building today, would you inspire us? Would you fill us with your presence that we would walk out of this place and tell the world around us about Jesus, about your son, and the power of hope to change the world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.